So we are in for a treat this morning, and if you were here last night, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. We have with us today uh, Dr. Ed Gray. Uh, he is a professor emeritus from the Harding University. He, was a, he also won the Teacher of the Year Award in 2005. Uh, he has been counseling individuals and couples for over 30 years, uh, 40 years, sorry, and he has written several programs for helping people through difficult transitions in their lives. It's called uh, 12 Conversations, and you can check that out at 12conversations.com. Uh, Ed has also been married to his wife, Rhonda, for 44 years, I believe. Yeah, actually 47. Oh, 47. Okay. Okay, so 47, even better. Amazing. Uh, he has three sons uh, and two daughters-in-law, and he has been an associate minister in Louisiana. He is a psychologist and marriage and family counselor in California. And he's currently a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, as well as a licensed professional counselor in Tennessee. Long list of credentials here. Uh, Ed is a very well-rounded man, too, uh, personally. I just heard him singing very well. He's got lots of gifts and talents. It's amazing. Uh, I was talking to him about our plans to build a house one day at the property we have, and, and Ed mentioned that him and his wife actually self-contracted uh, and even did a lot of work on building their own home. So he has lots of skills. Uh, I think I'm going to ask him, you know, to come back here when he's available and maybe help us out, and then he can also, like, give me some counseling when, when I'm stressed out about building a house, too. So very helpful. Uh, we are so thankful to have you with us today, Ed. Let's please give uh, Ed a, a round of applause as he comes up. Thank you. It is so good to be with you again this morning. And uh, thank you for those kind words. It has been just a joy to get to uh, hang out and be with a number of uh, you here in the church. I was so delighted this morning when I came in and I was greeted. Hey, we watched the Mr. Rogers movie last night. And uh, and yes, it was pretty slow in the first five to ten minutes, but it then picked up. Um, so anyway, we had a good time referencing that and doing some biblical reflections. If you weren't with us last night, we talked about where our ability to counsel comes from, because it's not really from us. It's from God and the very comfort that God has given us, as Paul wrote in the second Corinthian letter. We then pass on that same comfort that with which we have been comforted by God. And it all comes from him as the God of compassion the Father of all compassion and the Father of all grace. So we did some a number of reflections on the ministry of Jesus, and I so appreciate our songs, and I so love that last song. I think that's what heaven's going to sound like. Uh, and so we just enjoyed a taste of heaven with each other as we sang all those songs, but especially that last song about God uh, is love. What I'd like us to do today, we're going to look at some foundational ways and things about being a helper. And so oftentimes we think of professionals or ministers or elders being the helper, but really it is the body of Christ and our interactions with friends, with people that we work with, people that we live in the neighborhood with, and people we just have chance encounters with. How do we become better tuned in to reaching out and hearing the hurts and being God's presence and God's hands of mercy uh, to people? And so that's what we're about this weekend. So I'd like for you to think about a person who has been helpful to you. 
Sometime in the past in your life, this person has been really helpful to you. And what did he or she do that you found helpful? What characteristics did they display in that encounter or those encounters with you? Just pause and think back in your life. Who would you identify who's been helpful to you? I think of one of our ministers who took an interest in me uh, as a young teenager. Um, and, and he just kind of took me under his wing. I remember another deacon who we back in the days of printing presses instead of nice Xerox machines, copy machines like, like you all have. Uh, you had an offset temperamental old printing press at the church. And I remember uh, that particular deacon said, hey, you want to, you know, print up a teen newsletter and you want to be a part of this with me? And we spent time together. And I will always remember Ken Rice because of the time that he spent with me. So I'll pause for a moment. Think about who in your life really kind of spoke into your life, was an influence, who was helpful to you. Then I'd like to have you turn to the person you're sitting next. It may be your spouse, maybe a friend, and share what was it? Who was this person and what something about how they were helpful to you? Take two minutes to do that. Go. Ten more seconds. Okay, let's hear some of these. We've got a roving mic so the people on the recording uh, can hear what you say. But share just briefly who this person was and, and what something about them, a characteristic or what they did that was helpful to you. We have our roving mic ready to receive you. I immediately thought of a lady that I met when I was a young preacher's wife. Her name was Lavina Bailey, and according to Lavina, everything was lovely. And anyone who knew her knows that word, because that word was one she used often, and she was very gracious and very encouraging to me. I wanted to be like Lavina Bailey. She had a focus on the lovely, and she sounds like she helped you find that. Wonderful. Someone else. 
my husband who's sitting beside me was, oh, accepted me exactly as I was with all my sin, with all my problems, and he never made decisions for me that I needed to make for myself. He just was there, always respectful. That sense of acceptance, that being there for you, always there. That non-judgmental presence of acceptance in spite of the struggles of our life, which we all have. Wonderful. Doug? I think one of the things about being here is that there's lots of people who really care about me a lot. Like recently, I, I'm supposed to be going for surgery in about a few months because of the wait, the, 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 the delays. So everybody's been praying for me and caring for me so much. Everybody's been caring for me for so many years. What a beautiful thing to be cared for by such a loving, by, by such a loving body of Christ, which is just wonderful that they care, look out for your interests, everything, and, and disciplines, everything. Thanks. That sense of care that people pray about you, they're curious, they're, they're wanting to know about you, they stay alongside of you, they're there for you. You know you've got people that have got your back. I really wondered why God brought me here and what his plan and his purpose was for me being here because I was coming from another church. And I wasted a whole lot, and people just let me continually waste it. Um, but I think Diana at, one, Diana at one point, I was just constantly watching her, and I kept saying, I'm in a really dark place right now, and I came looking for her. And I said, I need to talk with you. I need to know what the difference is. And she let me just talk. And I said, I'm in a really dark place here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why God brought me here. And she just let me talk. Wow. To be in a dark place and know that you can reach out and somebody will spend time with you and they'll talk with you. And it gets better. Yes. Uh, the person for me is, I believe, a mutual friend of ours is Scott Laird. And Scott was just getting going in his ministry, and it was the toughest time in my life. And I reached out to him. And what did he do is, because he didn't have any of his training now, he's the Dr. Laird, and doing a lot of coaching for congregations. But we opened the scripture, and he's like, it was in uh, Matthew, and he's like, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? He said, I don't know what's going on, but you got to trust God. And what Scott did is he called me every day for three months. Grant, how is the fish? He completely changed my mindset on what I thought was the worst time of my life. For months, he kept checking in with you and said, how's the fish? And kept working with you and just caring. That sense of constancy, knowing that somebody is not just going to say, be warmed and filled uh, and just have a nice word to say to you, but that they keep checking in with you. Three months, I think you said. Wow. Wow. Anyone else before we move on? Okay. So when we think about helping others, sometimes we have unrealistic beliefs and, and it almost like keeps us, you know, kind of like, um, I'm going to avoid that situation I'm kind of not going to go there because we think that if if I help people, I've got to solve all their problems. Or maybe if a person doesn't change, it's not my 
it's not my thing. I must have made a mistake. And so it's my fault if they don't get better just instantly. Or sometimes uh, we think I wouldn't want to make a mistake. So I'll just kind of be polite and, and just kind of leave them alone. There was a, a couple in a ministry in a child care uh, children's home where I worked early on after my first job uh, out of ministry, uh, per se, with the congregation in a children's home. And Stan, they were so kind. Stan and Alice, they could be drowning. And you'd try to offer help, and they'd say, oh, no, 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 please, we wouldn't want to get your stick wet as you're trying to pull them out of the water, literally. But sometimes we think we might make a mistake, and so we don't offer help. Or maybe it's hard to even receive help. Sometimes I've found if I say something that's a mistake... And a person, you know, gets hurt or they cry. It's kind of like, oh, I'm so sorry. Tell me what's going on. And then they tell me, you know, I I remember uh, one of my students uh, one day and she sat in a chair and the spring broke. And I said, because she said she wanted to be pregnant and uh, start her family. And I said, ooh, uh, you're picking up a little weight and, you know, you're pregnant. And she burst into tears. She had just miscarried a few days earlier. And I felt so bad I'd said the wrong thing, but we cried together. And I was, I'm so sorry, tell me more about. And so then she told me more of the story. If I'd not said something that even was wrong that day, she might not have poured out her heart of what's going on. And I can think of a number of things when I've been counseling, even with what I know to do. And I didn't realize when I made an analogy to cancer or something of how a problem grows. And maybe this person has just recently been diagnosed or they've had a struggle with cancer. And and they break down in tears and they tell me about that. And I say, I'm so touched by what you've been through. I didn't know. Tell me more. And so even though it was a mistake, it's it's actually sometimes okay if we're humble about it and we just kind of step back a second and instead of focus on, oh my, I made a mistake. How could I have done that? You know, in my textbook in counseling, you know, 101, it's no, it's better to just say, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Tell me more. How are you today? And just be curious and caring in asking these open-ended questions. And it, it somehow brings us back around. So I guess I would encourage you, you don't have to have a degree to say, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. Sometimes it's out of our mistakes. It's out of our brokenness of a question It's out of our cracked pot or our cracked vessel, as we referenced last night, that God sometimes can do the most powerful. And my hunch is there's some of you in the room, you've reached out, you've tried to help, and somehow it didn't work, and it felt like it got worse. But actually, that's oftentimes the very beginning of touching a heart and getting things out in the open where you can be God's hands and God's presence in their lives. So don't be afraid 
especially with what we go through this weekend, that you've got some equipping, some some skills to listen better and just be um, more curious about their life and their situation and asking about that. I hope we'll lean into that and not worry about making mistakes. We can always back up, take a backup step and say, I'm sorry, tell me more about that. I didn't realize that. It's really okay to make mistakes. You'll do more ministry if you have the courage to make a mistake. Well, I don't know what to say. Well, simply just be there. God will give you in the moment, if you're just present with God's presence with this person, rather than my performance as God's hands in this moment, it's a lot better if you're just a real person who cares and you reach out. Don't worry about making mistakes. You'll do far more ministry if you'll kind of set your performance anxiety aside. One of the things that sometimes people ask me about is how is counseling or reaching out and helping others different from a friendship? Because I care about my friends and I want to be helpful to them. And I'd say, great, be a great friend. There are some differences when we're in that God's hand reaching out to others to receive them, to to extend his mercy and his grace. There is some difference. We focus on the other person. We don't focus on ourselves. In a friendship, it's kind of like a two-way street. And I've got an uh, illustration here. Well, I don't have that in this PowerPoint slide. But anyway, um, it's more like a one-way street. And I've been on a number of one-way streets with Miles and Jay as we've been traveling around uh, Winnipeg. And you're going all that same direction. Well, when we're in a helper mindset role, we're going all the same direction just with the client or the person that we're trying to help. Uh, we're not on a two-way street because in a friendship, I want you to take my side. Uh, I don't want you to be objective or just neutral. I want you to be on my side and take my side and, you know, be on the defense with me if I'm upset about something. That's a friendship. Or I expect to get something from my friend. I give and I receive. It's a two-way street. Well, when we're in a helper mode, we're on a one-way street. And it's this person's need street that we're on. We're not on the two-way thing. Also, when somebody discloses, you know, maybe we're out in the, you know, lobby of the church and, you know, hi, how you doing? What's been going on this week? When we're in a helper mode, we're going to deeper conversation about how are you really doing in your life? Tell me what's going on. I know X, Y, Z, it's been difficult. And so you go to a different depth level when you're in that helper uh, mode. Things that not usually are talked in normal conversation. Um, and so that's a difference. And so, again, when we're in the helper mode, we're not in the me too. You know, somebody shares a struggle. Yeah, me too. And then we start five, ten minutes talking about a time in our life. And this person is... 
they're bleeding and we're talking about something three years ago, bleeding metaphorically, and we're talking about three, four, ten years ago, we were bleeding about something. Whose need is more pressing at the moment? The person who emotionally is bleeding or who's struggling with something. And so we put our stuff, as we talked about last night, we put our book on the shelf or (laughs) we sit on it. We sit on the book of our life and we don't open up our pages relating our story. And so we are focused not on a two-way street of friendship, but we're focused on a one-way street of giving. Even if that's with a friend, we kind of temporarily suspend that two-way street and normal conversation is somebody starts in, on a topic and then we parallel that topic or we, you know, go back and forth. So in a helper role, we're on that one way street. So sometimes it helps to think about, OK, what are some strategies? If somebody's in a crisis, we help mobilize resources. It may be um, things that we know that are available to them. Maybe it's food and clothing. Maybe it's some kind of government social services support uh, or there's some support group. Uh, and so we will mobilize resources to get to this person. If it's not a crisis and we're we're spacing out conversations, perhaps over that three months or more that somebody's checking in, you know, if we know of a good book or a good movie or something that applies uh, to their situation or some kind of activity, we might recommend. Have you thought about and we put it out there? Notice, have you thought about versus you need to go watch, you know, or you need to go read or, you know, we. We try to say things a little more tentatively when we're in that helper role because we don't know for sure. And when we say something tentatively, have you thought about or could it be a possibility or do you know somebody who goes to AA or celebrate recovery? What do you know about their experience with that? Instead of you need to go to AA or you need to go to celebrate recovery or you need to go to this support group or so. Part of that helper role is we take a, a, a step back, a more gentle approach in even suggesting something um, for someone. Another thing to remember is sometimes people are not yet ready to change. As painful or difficult as their situation is, they haven't hit bottom yet or they're just needing to be in their dark place for a while longer. And when it's the right time, it'll be the right time. And so we can't move people quicker than they are ready to move. We can't work harder than another person. And I know a number of us uh, in ministry caring situations feel like we're working harder than the person. We're more motivated to get change going in their life than they are. So some of the things we'll be looking at later today and tomorrow morning in our sermon time is how do we help people find that right time to change? So we have to remember we can't make things happen. People's hearts and lives and situations need to find that right time. There's another whole area if you want to do uh, a little Wikipedia research about motivational interviewing. 
It's something we won't talk about much today, but motivational interviewing is we talk to people about their painful situations. Instead of moving to solution or moving to, you know, where the better place in their life could, should, must be, we simply talk about the despair or the addiction or whatever their situation is. And it's not encouraging them to complain, but it's getting curious to know how this helps them currently in their life, what's going on, what they're doing, even if it's kind of destructive or is destructive in their life. You know, if somebody's um, stuck in their problem, we need to find out their problem. Their, you know, most people are doing the best that they can. And even though it may be woefully inadequate, they're trying to apply whatever it might be to help them with their problem. Let's say it's alcohol or some kind of drug. They're trying to not feel. They're trying to cope as best they can, even though it's it may be destructive to their life. They're trying to do the best they can. And we talk with them. So how is that helping you? And so it helps me not feel. It helps me uh, relax or unwind. It helps me. And so we find out how the the problem that they're you know pursuing is their attempt to make things better in their life. And then in the caring kindness of radical presence, hopefully we get to then places of. When they're ready to change, I remember one illustration I heard a fellow talking about. He wanted to quit smoking, and he'd been smoking for years, ever since he was uh, a preteen. And the counselor talked about, you know, so tell me about smoking and, and, and kind of what friend it has been to you in your life, how it's been helpful to you. And it was only when this father was desperate to have another pack of cigarettes that he was in the pickup line for his kids at school. And he thinks, I've just got enough time to get to the corner store and get back in line. And so he gets out of line and he's headed to the store and it's raining and he sees his son come out of the rain, but he's already left the pickup line and he's down. He can't get back in. And he sees his son drenched in the rain and he crumples the empty package and he throws it out the car window. I'm not ever going to smoke again. But it was at that point where he found the motivation from within to stop. And we have to be patient with people and and listen to a lot of stuff sometimes about their problems before they find a place where they're ready to make a change. And so that takes a number of ingredients to do motivational interviewing. But if you go to Wikipedia, look up motivational interviewing, you'll find some good basic articles and some links that uh, YouTube videos that might be be helpful uh, to you. But when people ask me about Ed, what makes helping work? I say there are uh, some things that are important for us to look at. And these ingredients are, first of all, as we've been talking about last night, there's the power of relationship. 
The very fact that we're willing to listen, that they are, they found a person they can trust, they can communicate with, and we can give a sense of, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to be here with you. There's a sense of hope that they're going to have help. Then there's insight, you know, getting some perspective, learning. So how long have you been X, Y, Z? You know, what's been going on in your life? And so we, we learn about the history and perhaps out of that people learn some insight about perspective and patterns and, and maybe their family of origin as they grew up. A question I love to ask people is, when is the first time in your life you kind of remember experiencing this? And they go back, maybe that's two or three years, maybe it's 10 or 20 or 30 years. And they tell you about that first time that they were aware of experiencing this. And they get to share their feelings and letting it out. Um, I remember when I was a, a young counselor in training, uh, the, the counseling professor said back in the days of want ads in the newspaper or services offered, and somebody out of the New York newspaper uh, had run a, a, I will listen to you. No questions asked. I will simply listen. It was like, you know, so much an hour. And I'm thinking, wow, what a great job that would be, you know, getting money just because you'll listen. But there's an amazing thing that goes on when you're silent and caring, radical presence in someone's presence who needs to talk. There's something about we call it catharsis in counseling of letting it out. Someone else has reached out and they know I'm not alone. And then another ingredient for counseling, if we were talking about a recipe, is behavior has to change. Sometimes we have to change behavior in, in, in recovery circles, fake it till you make it. That's not lack of genuineness. Sometimes we have to start changing behaviors before the feelings catch up. And so when we're in a helper mode, we may help this person. Have you thought about this or what have you thought about doing differently in your life? And so people have to do some things differently to get to a different place. And then certainly people's difficulties don't just happen overnight. It's been some time that this has developed in their lives. And so I say in the ingredients of counseling, it takes some time passing um, to incorporate both this power of relationship, insight, feelings being let out and expressed, changes, experiments happening. It takes time. And then certainly as God's people bathing this in prayer. And sometimes we're helping people of faith and they want us to pray with them. Other times we're helping people that don't know God. In fact, they may be angry at what they know about God. And we can pray for them out of their presence. But prayer and these other ingredients, I think, are what compromise, what com- the components, what com- compromise counseling, what uh, goes into the recipe. Here's some research that comes, and uh, we'll spend just a moment with this. And this pie chart talks about 
what makes counseling work? There have been some studies done, meta-studies, no matter what the theory of counseling, the level of training of the counselor, what makes counseling work? And 40% of it, the big orange section, is what happens in the person's life. Their resources, their, their personality, their, their education level, their family support, if they have community support, their neighbors, their, uh, perhaps a recovery group, uh, a church, the support in their life and who they are as a person. That's 40% of what makes counseling. How much do you have to do with that? Zero. And so this is that part that they bring of who they are in their lives. That's 40% of what makes it work. 30%, this um, lower uh, section here, um, that's the relationship that we have. And that's that radical presence. It's the things we'll be talking about further today and tomorrow morning. It's our ability to connect. 40% them, 30% our radical presence, if you will. Now we're at 70% of what makes counseling work. Another 15% is hope and expectancy. In medical research, we call that a placebo. Uh, It's an inert pill. It might be a sugar pill. It's just something that doesn't really have any medicine in it. But the very fact that people believe that they're getting medicine Immune systems are conditioned oftentimes by our minds and our attitudes. And we know that it's a valid impact, even though it's not anything in the medicine itself. It's the hope and what that triggers within us, even medically, our immune system, and we get better. So now we're up to 85%. And you and I can be involved fully as you might say lay people we're not professionals in ministry or counseling 85% we've got it only 15% could these studies attribute to a given theory maybe it's a cognitive behavioral uh, approach uh, to counseling doesn't that sound impressive or maybe it's an emotion focused counseling there's EFT emotion focused therapy Uh, CBT or uh, EMDR or all these other kinds of things that are promoted as the magic of helping people get better. That's only 15% of what professionals add to what you and I can do as just caring people of God. Is that kind of striking to you that It's not how much you know about counseling being the major difference. It's really only a minor difference. It's the human spirit reaching out to another human spirit. That's what makes helping work. So I tell my students, we are the strongest, most influential force in the room that God has to use Uh, in helping another person. And so I talk about use of self. Sometimes people say, well, I can't help someone unless I've been there too. 
had a student of mine who became a very effective counselor, and he worked a lot in addictions uh, early on. And he did not personally have his own journey with addiction and recovery. And so people would would ask him, you know, have you had your journey? And, and I know it can be very helpful for folks who have had uh, a journey of recovery to be helpful in reaching out to others. Totally uh, sign on for that. But George would say, you know, I don't have to have um, a, 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 a really big track record in, in having wrecks to know to help you drive in your life. And you're not here uh, to, you know, learn about how to have wrecks. You're here how to drive within the lanes of life. George had some real common sense wisdom about how he approached folks. And we don't have to have exactly the same experiences that other people have had. We have to be humble and simply be present to really uh, hear them. And so there'll be occasions when we might disclose something about ourselves, but that's like this much compared to this much listening and open-ended questions and and focusing on the one-way street of their life. And so occasionally I might say, you know, I have a story in my life. Could I share that with you? And I want it to be a 30-second story uh, or a minute story. And I don't want it to be a story where it's great, I'm the hero. It needs to be a story about where I've struggled and I was confused and I didn't have the right answers. People learn a lot better out of what we share when it's not a this great idea that or behavior that I've done. I remember, here's an illustration, because uh, preachers sometimes are trying to inspire you. And this preacher that I heard was talking about his personal devotional life and his journaling, his prayer life, and how much time he spent, you know, a day with God. And he was trying to inspire people to be a little more intentional in their walk with God. But what I heard as a fellow church member as I was heading off to Sunday school, a few people grumbling, well, if he had a real job and a real employer, he wouldn't have the time to do that kind of stuff. And so I'm kind of thinking, you know, if he shared I was in a low place in my life and it lasted for about six to nine months and I really struggled and I really didn't know where God's voice was in my life. And and finally, one day I kind of woke up and I said, I've got to get more intentional with God. People would have related a lot better to that. And then maybe been curious and maybe asked him about after the sermon. So on that day when you kind of woke up and you said, I've got to change, what did you start doing? They would have been more receptive than hearing his great hero stuff. And so if you do ever share something of your own life, make it brief. It needs to have good timing. And you need to be sensitive to this is kind of how you're relating to their stuff. But it could very well be a mismatch. And so usually if I will say something, I know this really, this is like this compared to what you're dealing with. But it helps me know that this is really hard for you. And so be sensitive to the fact that there's mismatch. Just because uh, your father died doesn't mean that's exactly how it is for them with their father uh, dying or spouse or whomever it might be. 
that you're coming alongside of them. And so a better use of yourself in coming alongside is to say comments, including yourself. We will figure this out together. I don't know the answer, but we will. And then you fill in the rest of that sentence or, you know, I find myself reluctant. You know, you're asking for advice and I know a lot of people have given you advice and I don't want to just be one of those people in your life. I want to really be here for you. Do you hear how different that is? I feel reticent to, you know, give you advice. I appreciate that you're asking for it, but let me just walk alongside of you and understand you better and, and, and walk with you through this. That's an involvement, a use of yourself. Or, you know, somebody's pouring out their heart, for, you know, about what's going on in their life. And so you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a real sense of heaviness, a, a hurt for you with what you're going through. That's use of self. You're including yourself in it. But it's a very compassionate joining kind of thing. I'm feeling and whatever it is that's in your gut or I'm feeling a bit anxious. I'm feeling nervous for you. And it's kind of like joining their nervousness, their anxiety or their confusion. Is that helpful how we use ourselves in counseling and and being helpers and outreach to people? We are God's tool in that moment. We just need to be a a tool that God can use, not about my ego, not about me being the person. If we do say something in our lives that turns out to be a mistake, it may be because we went into the deep end of the pool of our own book of our life, and it's just not the right timing in this one-way street. So it could be poorly timed and not matching their experience. So just be careful if you do use any self-disclosure about your life. Be very careful. Here's another perspective about helping uh, others. We don't want to be this dominant force in the person's life. And I was working with a group and they tended to be, let me take charge and tell you what to do and just, you know, orchestrate things for you. We don't want to be that heavy arrow overshadowing uh, the other person. We want to be observing our boundaries with respect. And it's kind of like an arrow like up here. We're alongside. We're no greater influence than their influence over their situation. And so we want to be uh, with the person. Forgive my illustration professionally, the client. We want to be the helper who comes alongside of them, but does not overshadow them. Any questions about that you want to talk about? I think this takes some of the pressure off when we don't feel like we have to be this great influence for good or for help in somebody's life. We just get to be a sojourner, remembering that we are made out of the same feet of clay the same humanity that this person that we're sitting with is made of. One of the things that's really important when we're helping someone is realize, even if you look like me, my background and my family upbringing and my, my community is different from yours. 
And so a lot of times we say, oh, people look like me. They should think like me. And that's not true. We look at people helping folks with, you know, who are of a different age. If you're younger, and for many years I was on the younger side of life, and if I was helping someone older, I really needed to take a down one position and learn from them because they had more experience in life than me. And so if somebody is of a different uh, age bracket, now that I'm older, I have to be respectful and not be, well, I've been there, done that. And I know about I need to also take a down one position because I don't know what it's like to be younger in this day and time. How many of you would want to be a teenager again? Oh, my, no, with the struggles and what they're facing now, I have no clue how difficult that must be. And social media and trying to, you know, fit in and find my place in this world. Yeah, I might like the agility of a teenager <laughs> kind of thing, but I, I don't want to go back there again. Also, gender, you know, be it female, be it male, we kind of come at the world with our gender view of things. And so someone may be of a different race. Uh, they may be of a different socioeconomic background or faith or culture or country of origin. And one of the things that I appreciate about this church is that there are over 30 different uh, nationalities represented Amongst this this church family. And so when we're helping one another or we're helping someone in the community, we need to be sensitive that we don't know about their background. And so someone who is different from us actually becomes our teacher. And so we we kind of sit back and we learn about their family. We learn about their culture, the way they do family, the way their culture approaches things. They become our teacher. When I practiced uh, as a counselor in Southern California, um, it kind of reminds me a lot about Winnipeg. There's this, this sense of so many people coming from so many different places in the world. And, and so I enjoyed getting to meet people and learn about them. And I'll tell you a few stories in a minute. But one of the things that particularly impresses me is that people look at the world differently. You know, I come from white, middle-class, Western culture. And I believe you work hard, you get good results. Uh, I don't trust just leaving things up to chance or fate. I am in charge of my life, and I make things happen. Well, when Hurricane Katrina, uh, if you remember that, some nearly 15 years ago, occurred, people were all upset. Why didn't people leave the city? Uh, why didn't you, you know, why do you stick around and, and get flooded and get trapped in an attic and have to chop through the roof? Or you die and drown because you didn't leave the city when it was predicted that these hurricanes and floods would occur. Well, if you don't have a car, you can't just jump in and leave. If you don't have the income to buy a ticket to get out of the city, if you have been getting government assistance and you trust others to take care of you, uh, or you trust in medical science or science of weather prediction to, you know, we shouldn't be having these problems. 
There's a way that we think about external control. I bring control on my world versus internal that I don't have control. Control just happens to me. Life happens, and I just kind of have to do the best I can with what I've got versus internal control. I can impact my world. I make a difference. My vote makes a difference. I have hard work. I have good education. Do you hear I, 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 self-directed kind of stuff versus other-directed? And so people think differently, even within a similar socioeconomic culture. But certainly when you go outside of different socioeconomic or education or cultural concerns, people look at life differently. And so we... We can't just read that on a screen. Tell me, you know, you know, we can't know that about people. We just have to be radically present and we learn how they view life, whether it's internal control or external control. Most importantly, we may know something about people who are different from us, but don't take that as a stereotype. Not all people view things this way of a particular race or country of origin. We have to learn one person at a time their background and what they need. And so one of the things that I encourage us to do is in your community or in your, uh, your, the, your people, however they, you know, refer to themselves, what do people in your situation typically do? Uh, I'm thinking of uh, a person, uh, Amatul, and she was from Pakistan, and she had great anxiety. Her medical doctor referred her to me for some counseling. But I don't know anything much about people from Pakistan other than I need to be a student, and she was my teacher. She was uncomfortable being in a room with me, a man who was not her husband or a medical doctor or a brother. And I, I saw her just fidgeting, and I said, Amatul, how is this for you to be here today? I'm not a bright person, uh, but you can tell if somebody's really uncomfortable. And so don't say, why are you uncomfortable? So, you know, that puts people on the defensive. Just say, so how is this for you to be here today with me? And so she told me about her culture. It was not appropriate for, for her to be in a room with a man with the door closed And I said, you know, there's an empty hallway once an hour. My colleague and a client go down that hallway. Would it be okay for me to just open the door? Would that be helpful to you? You could see the weight of the world off her shoulders because she was no longer violating her cultural role rules about being in a closed door room with a man who was not husband, brother, uh, or medical doctor. She did ask me, are you doctor? And I said, well, I have a doctorate in counseling, but I'm not a medical doctor. So that answer didn't help her. Uh, so anyway, so find out people's community res- cultural things. One of the things that I did with Amatul in her situation with a mother-in-law who'd come to live with the eldest son, her husband, uh, and how difficult that was to have her mother-in-law uh, live in her home, telling her what to do for her children, grandchildren, what to do about feeding her husband, her son. Uh, You can kind of 
imagine a mother-in-law living in your home who was taking charge, how that might be for you. And so I won't tell you all the story, but I did ask this question. So what do other women in your situation, in Pakistani uh, folks in, here in America, what do they do when a mother-in-law comes to live with them? And she told me stories and Eventually, out of those stories, she came up with what she would do. And after about five or six visits, her anxiety got better. No more need for counseling. Her life was in a better place. She coped with her mother-in-law being in her home because that was not going to change cultural rule. Eldest son takes care of the mother after the mother's husband dies. That wasn't going to change. I couldn't change the culture, but I could help her within her own culture uh, adapt. I'm thinking of Mark, who was of Asian descent. He uh, uh, was born in Japan. His parents came to the Los Angeles area. Um, and so I asked Mark, I said, how Americanized are your parents? He says, mm, very little, maybe 10 percent. I say, how Americanized are you? You know, you've grown up and gone to school here in the L.A. school district. And, and he says, Oh, 70 percent. I was kind of surprised. I kind of thought he would maybe be like totally westernized. And he grew up with parents who still had culture and rules and roles that he had adopted. So I don't know much about Japanese culture. And my stereotype would certainly not help in me trying to outline advice for him. And so I said, so, Mark with his anger problem and problems at work. That's why he was referred to me. Um, I said, Mark, in your culture, in in stories, in, in mythology, is there a character who struggled with anger? He thought for a half a second and started. He listed off a character and I said, tell me the story. So he started telling me the story. And out of the story, I said, are there some things out of this person, this character's traits that would be helpful to you in this situation? And he started lining out about four or five things that he could start doing differently. And I kind of sat back just really curious, just really with with great honor to what he was sharing with me, saying, is that something you think you could start doing this week? With great shoulders back and pride, he said, yes. He had his vision and his hope, and it come from within him. Not from me, from my Americanized Western culture idea of anger management and putting him through a 10-session workbook series of anger management. Might be okay if I like that book, if that, you know, was something I needed to work on. But it wasn't for him. It was out of the power of story and touching base with his culture. We won't spend a lot of time with East versus West, but I'm sure in your church here you have people with an Eastern mindset. And there's a sense of the primacy of relationship um, with others about community um, more of an authoritarian uh, orientation, extended family loyalty and structure, uh, emphasis on age, wisdom, maturity. 
interdependence with one another, compliance, honoring uh, authority, conforming to what the group needs, cooperation, harmony, security. You think about Western culture and maybe John Wayne kind of movies come to mind. Primacy of the individual or the crooner uh, uh, who would sing, and I'll do it my way. You know, it's kind of a Western kind of mindset. The individual, uh, democratic, everybody has a voice. My voice counts. You need to listen to me. Uh, the nuclear family, tight family structure. When we say family, we usually mean mom, dad, and the kids, not aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, and east versus west. We have our emphasis in Western culture on youth. We're not so much into wisdom. We're into vitality and looking young. Being independent, being assertive, it's my way, non-conforming, you know, I need to have my voice, competition, conflict. Do you hear the difference between mindset in a Western mindset culture, West versus East? Here's a spiritual challenge. Think about the epistles and the church. Which does our Bible sound more like? Eastern culture versus Western mindset culture. Just something to think about. Also, male-female differences. We look at gender and gender roles differently um, between cultures and even in cultural differences. So know your own background, your own stereotypes of how males ought to be, how females ought to be, how moms ought to be, how dads ought to be. If there's male dominance as kind of your go-to default uh, and female subservience, um, abuse issues that uh, occur and verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, power issues and, and who runs the money in the family or the marriage um, how feelings are expressed. We, ex- you know, in typical circumstances, we expect females to be very feeling oriented. We expect males to be very rational and behavior focused. Uh, and so there are some gender differences in how we look at things. Respect for uh, others. Um, You know, being a good, that's all right. Uh, being a good helper is being flexible. You know, something's not working. We figure it out. And, you know, it's all okay. It's all good. Not a problem. Um, and so be very aware that in gender issues, oftentimes uh, when, I'll just finish up the next minute with this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that guys often think, more romantically when they're getting help that they, oh, you're really interested in me. You're really caring because, you know, we should be a thing. 
And so I really encourage in church helping, women need to help women, guys need to help guys kind of thing, because we just don't want some of that transference going uh, in that male, uh, female kind of thing where things get misunderstood. I think also physical touch is important to remember that touch is very powerful. And what happens down here in front is we might hug, might receive somebody, we might hold them uh, at a funeral home and, and people are grieving and crying. And what happens in front of God and country is one thing. But I make it a rule, I don't hug people in my office because that's just that person, that guy or that uh, lady uh, and me. And things get misunderstood when we're in a touch situation. So I really encourage you, um, even if you do find yourself uh, with someone of the opposite sex, do not touch. The sound of your voice conveys compassion. It's not You don't have to use touch to convey compassion. Keep your hands to yourself. Uh, I've seen even with ministry folks who've not had a lot of training in counseling get into trouble, something that starts very innocently, a dependence from the other person uh, gets started, and physical touch oftentimes a part of how things begin to go uh, astray. And so we have to look at whose needs are being served. When when we want to touch and reach out to somebody, that may be because I'll feel less anxiety in the helper role if I can somehow comfort you as a child as I would. I had one counselor you know, went through my program. She said, I just, I just hug everybody. And that was about her need to be kind of this loving grandma type of person in everybody, be they adult, be they child. And it was a real challenge to get her to see this was about her meeting her own needs, about her image, about herself being this warm, caring, giving person, rather than letting her words and her tone of voice, her expression of compassion, being that service of connection. So just be very careful about whose needs are being touched. And there are gender issues. Females do that better um, you know, with one another than guys uh, do. And yet sometimes guy to a guy just, you know, putting your arm around them and, you know, somebody sobbing on your shoulder. Cool. Okay. That can be a, a good helper position to be in. But if that were a female and you're a guy or a female helping a guy, just things transference, it gets kind of squirrely. So don't go there. We'll come back as we do our next session talking about nonverbals and how we do connect with people, how we do provide connection. Um, there are ways we can do that without relying on a, a cheap, quick, physical touch kind of way of doing that. But that's where we'll pick up uh, next session. Um, who'd like to lead us in prayer as we close? And any instructions for lunch and or a blessing for our lunch? Morning. Um, Before I lead us in prayer, uh, Jay was pointing out that we need to uh, form two lines, I think, out in the the foyer.